Good morning, everyone. Uh, we have some visitors with us. I will embarrass them. It's my daughter and son-in-law. So you two raise your hands, Becky, Evan. Okay, you all know Evan indirectly or directly. Do you know Paul and Jerry Briggs? That's their youngest son. Okay, so you might see some resemblance. He looks a little like Paul. There's a reason for that. It's kind of genetic. There is a table. I don't think I mentioned it before or anybody else mentioned it, but there's a table in the foyer that has some literature on it. Um, that That is stuff about Tim and Marcia and Baptist church planters. So I haven't mentioned much or anything hardly at all about it uh, since I've been here, but I just thought I would uh, allow you to have some exposure to my propaganda. Uh, but there are there, there is a cup there, uh, a mug, with a bunch of pens in it. Uh, please feel free to take one or more. They are intended to be used. Uh, you'll notice that one end has a highlighter, and the other end is a regular twist pen. So it's actually a Bible study tool, and that's why we got them. So uh, please avail yourselves of those. If you can use more than one, feel free to take more than one, okay? Now that's for adults. Children, I know you can go wild, but check with mom and dad. And if mom and dad say you can have one, then go for it, all right? I'm not opposed. Okay. Um, can you believe it? We have two more weeks after this one, and I'm done. The time has flown. I hope it's been good for you, because it certainly has been a blessing to me. So um, we'll see what God does in the future. I may be back. I hope I can be back. I think you'll. I hope you'll have me back someday. Um, do you have Second Peter open, chapter two? We're going to do the last half of the chapter uh, this morning. But I wanted to read this. I got this yesterday in the mail from a ministry that if I mentioned it, you'd know it quite well. But I just thought I would read what was written. Not all of it. I'm just going to read some excerpts from it. The author of the letter from this ministry says, You've doubtless been concerned about the direction that so many churches and professing Christians have taken over the past few years. I know we have been. The long march of unbelief in society, manifested today through ungodly views and behaviors, has swept into every major institution, including many churches. We are seeing biblical warnings come alive as deceptive influences disrupt the church's purity, peace, and unity. Wolves have crept into the sheepfold and are wreaking havoc. Previously trusted defenders of biblical faith have strayed, and well-funded detractors seek to replace biblical Christianity with falsehoods. State, academia, major corporations, and media have abandoned a God-centered perspective, are willing accomplices to aid in silencing confessional Christians. The battle lines have never been clearer. We're charged in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to remember that our warfare is not carnal, but divinely powerful to demolish strongholds of unbelief. 
True Christians, driven by love for God and neighbor, respond in prayer and action, proclaiming eternal truth. As Jesus Christ builds his church at the very gates of hell, this ministry stands firm without standing still. True Christians must not be lulled into complacency, assuming that past faithfulness guarantees present safety. Until Christ's return, churches are always one generation away from apostasy. Only by passing on the truth can we continue in it. While the church universal remains invincible, individual churches and denominations can falter, as history shows. Now, does that not sound like something that could have been written uh, in response to or in conjunction with what we've been studying in Second Peter? Second Peter is so relevant to today in so many ways, not only personally, but corporately as church. The passage that we have before us this morning for our consideration follows on the heels of what Peter addressed in our message last week. If you thought Peter was fired up last week, he really cranks it up a notch in this last section. His love and his care as a shepherd truly can be seen and felt in the tone he uses to warn this flock. Remember, this flock was not in one location. They were scattered abroad in multiple areas throughout the Roman Empire, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Peter's tone could rightly be considered bold, brash, unkind, even unbridled. But I believe he addresses his subject matter with apostolic authority and weight. Peter stops short of name-calling as he describes the overall crudeness, general character, as well as the flagrant and influential conduct of these false teachers, along with the devastating conclusion or end of these false prophets. He concludes with a dismal and rather disgusting description by citing a familiar Old Testament proverb. All this serves as a fitting conclusion to the plight of false teachers. Did, do you get the impression that Peter doesn't like false teachers? Well, that's exactly what he was getting at. That He accomplished his purpose. And he really, by extension, wants us to not like them either. I want you to note some things. So take your copy of the scriptures. And I want you to just note all the occurrences of they and these in the text. Notice in verse 10, they do not tremble. They blaspheme. Verse 12, but these, and then he describes them. A little later in the verse says, they're ignorant, and they will also be destroyed in their destruction. Their wrongdoing, verse 13. And then he says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast, they have eyes full of adultery. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They have gone astray, verse 15. Verse 
The latter part of the 15 says, they have followed the way of Balaam. Verse 17, these are waterless springs. Then for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They entice, verse 18. They promise, verse 19. They themselves are slaves of corruption. Verse 20, they have escaped, and then they are again entangled in them. And, and then it continues on in verse 21. For it would be better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. And then at the end it says what the true proverb says has happened to them. Peter is constantly bringing up these false prophets saying, listen, they are a danger. So my title this morning is stay alert. False prophets are not gone. They're still here. Just like they were in the first century, just like he says they were in the Old Testament, so they continue to be. They will continue to have an influence until Jesus comes and fixes everything. So if Jesus hasn't returned, then be on the alert. That's what Peter is saying. I want you to also notice something else. Look up in verse 12. Notice how he describes them. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. Now follow all the way, because he then talks about what happens to them, their end, their purpose. They're born to be caught and destroyed. And that they have this habit of blaspheming. Look at verse 22. Notice how he takes a proverb that occurs in Proverbs 26.11. By the way, it's a quote. The first half, the second half is not. But what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog, which is an irrational animal, returns to its own vomit. And the sow, which is a creature of instinct, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These are truisms. They're truthful sayings. Dogs. In fact, yesterday we, were, we had some guests at our home. And they were talking about their dog, and sometimes their dog is a pup, and the pup eats too much. And what does the pup do? Well, they get their tummy too full, and so they vomit. So what did the dog do? It goes back and eats what it just vomited. Now, to us, that's like, ugh, disgusting, gross. Yes, it is. But he says that's exactly what false teachers do. They vomit up untruth, and then they feed off of it trying to get other people to enjoy it with them. Now, I know that's a rather disgusting description to picture in your mind, especially when you come to church on Sunday morning. But that's how vile false teachers are. That's how much we ought to be revolted by what they teach. And that is Peter's point. And I believe that was the Holy Spirit's purpose in bringing that illustration to mind. So, let's look at the overall crudeness of false prophets. Notice what it says. It says that they are bold and willful. Bold and willful. They have no shame and tend to speak with authority. You ever heard these? Some of them are on television. They usually get a following. There's one down in Texas has about 10,000 people in a great, big, huge building. And when you see the dude, he is slick, sharp, 
Not too bad looking. His wife's not too shabby either. But he always has, he's just a smooth talker. I wish I had his ability to just kind of yammer along and not have to pause and think about what I'm going to say. He just seems to have it all planned out. His heart stops talking and it's so, it's just like, butter or honey dripping from his lips. He has such positive things to say to people and about situations, and he wants to make you feel good to the point where he wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. You know who I'm talking about. That's a false teacher. Because when you really get down to the core of what he teaches and what he is promoting, Notice the description that Peter gives. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. They say things, they speak things, they promote things that are absolutely untrue. Basically to make people feel good. A little bit like what Paul says back in his epistles when he says, beware of teachers that will say things that will tickle your ears. It sounds good. It sounds so positive. But it's so untrue. It's so false. It's so wrong. Bold and willful. They seem to speak with authority. Well, this is the truth. When really, what they should be speaking and saying is, this is garbage. This is not true. This goes against everything the Bible teaches. But they don't. And that's why they, Peter says they blaspheme. They speak untruths about angelic beings or about heavenly things of which they know nothing about. You ever talk to somebody who seems to know what they're talking about, but they really, when you go back and fact check them, they have no idea what they're talking about. That could probably be classified as 90% of our politicians today. They speak with great authority, but they really don't know what they're talking about. In fact, some of them speak as if they have authority, but they don't. They have no authority. They tell lies. And it's just a second nature to them. It's like they lie, but they have lied so often they don't even realize that they're telling lies because they have bought into a way of thinking that their worldview is the worldview and everybody else's full of hot air when they are the ones who are speaking untruths and foolishness and shouldn't be listened to. And Peter goes on to say that angels even refrain from speaking a blasphemous manner about other angels. They have no shame. False prophets have no shame and no restraint. Let me just take you to a passage of Scripture that says it much better than I just described it to you. And it's in the book of Jude. It's the book right before the book of Revelation. So if you find Revelation... Flip back to Jude. It's only one page in my Bible. It has only 25 verses. Not very long. But verses 8 through 13. Notice how Jude refers to them. By the way, 
This Jude is the brother of the Lord Jesus. He's speaking. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also, talking about ungodly people who don't tell the truth, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Does that sound a little bit like Peter? But then, but when, excuse me, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, now remember, Michael's the archangel. The devil is also was formerly an angel of light. He was on the same plane as a creature in God's creation as Michael was. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, now we know nothing of this from the account in Genesis when, when Moses died. Okay, oh, Not Genesis, but Exodus. When Moses died and was buried, no one knows where. Was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. But said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, false prophets, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals... Sounds like the reference we've already made in Second Peter chapter 2. Understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Notice, they are within and fellowship and are part of a church, a body of believers. So Peter is saying, Jude is saying, that these false teachers are individuals that we need to be aware of who may be even in our very own midst. These are not people that come from the outside and try to get in, but they are people who are within. So he's saying, be alert. And so what do they do? They're like shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I don't have time to unpack all of that. But the point is, is these false teachers to whom Peter was referring to in his epistle are people who really seem to have no qualms about saying things of which they know nothing about, about angelic beings, the glorious ones, as he mentions in verse 1 there. They blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels... And the reason I read the passage in Jude was to clarify what verse 11 says in Second Peter, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, they're in a different plane of authority than we are. We have been made lower than the angels, okay? We are the epitome of God's creation, but yet we are lower than the angels. That's why Peter warns, be careful. But they do, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them. In other words, these 
angels don't pronounce blasphemous pronouncements against other angels. Even Michael, the archangel, refused to pronounce a judgment on the devil when there was a dispute over the body of Moses. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. These false teachers are so bold, so willful, so brash, that they have no qualms about pronouncing things about which they know nothing about. Which puts them really in quite a very precarious position. Not only with the angels who are perhaps those who are of the, they're, they're, they're fighting for the other side. They're the devil's minions, mainly demons. But they have no qualms about pronouncing anything about angelic beings who are much more powerful than we are. And we need to respect them. So you see their overall crudeness. They have no qualms about speaking whatever they choose. Angels who are in a superior category and naturally have more restraint even than false prophets. That's why Peter says, beware. Watch out. Be careful. Now in verses 12 and 13, we get a clue, a little glimpse of the general character of false prophets. Notice, we've already mentioned they are like irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct. They are like the dog and the sow. They have no, they're, they're just, they act like animals, which means they act out of when they are, they're feeling threatened, what does an animal do? It has a defense mechanism. It's usually a mouth with a bunch of teeth in it, and they will bite you, or a bear, they may bite you, but they also have very long claws on the end of their paws, and they can swipe and slice you open and fillet you like a very sharp, sharp Ginsu knife with their claws. Or does anyone here want to mess with a shark in his environment? I don't think so. You may lose a limb or you may die. So they are... False teachers are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. When they feel threatened, they will react. But notice the purpose of their existence in verse 12. They were born to be caught and destroyed. But then again, this whole area of blasphemy comes up. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. But on the other hand, they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, this is a shocking statement because reveling, as a term, it meant being a party animal, which also involved usually alcohol. Some sort of mind bending drugs. This is in the first century, but it also involved sexual promiscuity. It usually, in pagan rituals, took place at night because it was in the dark and so they could hide their deeds from the general public. But these false prophets are accused of reveling in the daytime. That's not normal. That's not usual behavior. They reveled in the daytime. 
And so as a, as a result of that, Peter states that they are blots and blemishes. Blots and blemishes on the testimony of the gospel, the testimony of the church. They were as blots and blemishes. That while they feast with you, which presumes a church setting, <laughs> where the church is gathering for fellowship around the precious message of the gospel, love feasts, always surrounded with the idea of a Lord's table celebrating the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, that these false prophets, while feasting with you, are blots and blemishes. It's not a pretty picture he's painting for these guys. That's why he says, be careful. Notice that these who are feasting with you, that they have crept in secretly among you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Remember what chapter 2, verse 1 said? It says that they have crept in among you, and now you need to beware of them being among you. Just as there were false teachers, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So their destruction is being described here. This is how they bring destruction on themselves. is because they take and they do things that even the world doesn't want to participate in or at least knows they have a little bit of restraint and will do it at night, even though it's still wrong and it's evil and it's disgusting. They still, but they do that in broad daylight. It's almost like he's referring back to 1 Corinthians. Remember the guy who was actually living with his father's wife and the church in Corinth was condoning that? It's fascinating that every time you hear about false teachers in the New Testament that is always connected with sensuality and perverted sexual activity. If you don't think that's true, well, we're going to look at some passages here in just a moment that will tell us that as we go through. Let's look now at verses 14 and 15. This is the flagrant character of false prophets. Notice how they're described. They're described in these words. They have eyes full of adultery. Oh, no. Not a sexual reference again. But there it is. Perversion. Going against God's created order. They have eyes full of adultery. Notice how it's described. Insatiable for sin. In other words, they have this appetite that they can't seem to get enough of it. I want more. I need more. And in the process, notice the next phrase. They entice unsteady souls. They don't just participate in it themselves. They also try to drag in others who are unsteady, unstable in their ways, untaught in the truth. 
One commentator said this about this passage. They are unable to keep their eyes off of women with the goal of satisfying their sexual appetites. They entice. They drag others in with them. They prey on unsteady souls, people who are weak Christians, who have not been well-grounded in the truth. They've been untaught, they're vulnerable, and they're easily persuaded. The sad thing about this is that Marcia and I have, have experienced this in our ministries. And these people that end up being false prophets in the end are individuals, they seem so sincere. They seem so genuine. They seem like they really care. They really want to do good. And then after a while, they show their colors. And as a shepherd of a flock, you have to go into protect the flock mode. And you bring out the big stick. And you use strong language. Because what, do you, what does a shepherd do when, a, when wolves or coyotes attack a flock? They don't go over and try to tame them and say, oh, nice doggy. No, they get a stick out and they start beating them. <laughs> they throw rocks at them. Nowadays, they take out their firearm and shoot them. That's what you have to do to protect your flock because sheep are very vulnerable. Sheep are weak. Sheep are dumb. I'm sorry, I'm one of them, but I'm saying that about myself. We can be very, very dumb, very gullible, very vulnerable. But the job of a shepherd is to protect the flock. And so Peter is talking not only to the flock, says beware, but in other places we take Paul and what he says to shepherds, and he says, guard the flock of God, <laughs> you know? That's what the staff is for. It has two purposes, rescue with the hook, the crook out of difficult situations, but the other end is a blunt object that is meant to be used to bludgeon animals that seek to harm the flock. Notice that these people have no good intentions. They really don't care about Jesus. They really don't care about the gospel. They don't care about doing good to the flock of God. All they're seeking to do is harm and grab for themselves what they can while the getting is good, and then run off with it. It is, uh, their, their hearts are motivated, as, as Peter says here. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. That's an interesting statement. They have been trained in the art of greediness. I have a feeling that there are people like that in our world today. They want to get as much money as they can, and they don't care how they get it. They'll lie to your face, pretend to be one of you, all for the sake of trying to grab a little earthly gain out of it. They want to make money. 
They will go to the extent, as he says in chapter 2, verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. <laughs> Have you ever been the victim of a con artist? Have you ever had somebody that tried to sell you something that sounded it was too good to be true. And guess what? It was. But they, ex they extracted some cash out of you. And then they, in, in, a, in an incredible slick move, they poof, disappear. Can't find their phone number. Can't contact them by email. Can't get them to respond to whatever they have on their website. They're gone. They've disappeared. They took the money and ran. That's what false prophets do. They make it sound so wonderful and glorious and majestic and fruitful. That's what preachers of the prosperity gospel do. If you do this, send me this and I will send you this and you will have good luck for the next 20 years. I'm exaggerating. I've never gotten one of those from a false teacher. But I've gotten it from con artists, especially the ones from Nigeria. You remember that scam that took place? For I was getting countless emails from people. Esquire so-and-so over in Nairobi. Con artists. They have them in Ghana too, don't they, Bennett? <laughs> Notice what the general conclusion is. It's a very, very, it's a two-word short conclusion. What are they? Accursed children. Now, not children of God, but they are accursed children of the devil. That's what he's referring to. He's saying, really, the only thing is that it's very much like what Paul was saying to the Galatians in Galatians when he says, why have you followed after another gospel? And he says, if you do, you are anathema, or you are cursed. We need to be careful. Words have meaning. We need to be careful what we follow. And I am happy to say that your pastor is very cautious and careful about teaching you solid, orthodox, biblical truth. You folks do not know how blessed you are as a flock to have a pastor who cares that much for your soul to preach the truth. And sometimes it's not comfortable to preach things that come up in the scriptures. It makes us feel a little awkward and uncomfortable, but they need to be addressed. And the reason your pastor preaches on them is because he loves you. He cares for you. He's a good shepherd. He's not a false prophet. That is something you can be grateful to God for. Now, Peter uses an illustration, a very well-known one from the Old Testament in verses 15b to 16. Notice what he says. He says, they have followed the way of Balaam. The son of Beor, or in some translation, you might see Bosor. It's just two ways of spelling or stating the same uh, name. 
who loved gain from wrongdoing. Notice that that was his M.O. He loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. Speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Here's the quote from uh, the ESV study Bible. I thought they said it really well. They have followed the way of Balaam, which is recorded in Numbers 22 through 24 which is a life spent gaining things at other people's expenses by means of wrongdoing. Sounds like a con artist to me. Isn't that what you would describe a con artist as? (laughs) Having a life spent gaining things at other people's expenses by means of wrongdoing. In other words, cheating people out of their hard-earned money. That's basically what Balaam was up to. Balaam was particularly condemned for his greed. He was supposedly a man of spiritual insight. But God can use even a donkey to restrain someone who is following the way of madness rather than living as a rational, responsible human being. Now, I want you to notice, you might say, well, why does Peter use Balaam as an example? You will see the irony and the contrast in the illustration. I'm not going to make you go back and read the whole Chapters 22 to 23 of Numbers. It is a fascinating uh, story. But the thing is this. Here we boil it down to what's simple. Balaam was riding on what? A donkey. What is a donkey normally known as? It is an irrational creature who follows its instincts. Do you remember what we read in verse 10 and 11? Just a few moments ago. Now, who was acting irrational and by instinct? Balaam was. He was following his greedy instinct to make money and to gain things. What did God use to bring Balaam to his senses and understand what God's will was. He used a dumb donkey to talk to Balaam. Remember, what, is a, what, 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 what does Peter say? They're irrational animals and creatures of instinct. In this case, in, in Peter, it's a dog and a sow. In Balaam's instance, it was Balaam was the dumb creature who was acting on instinct, and the animal who was supposed to be a creature of instinct was actually being rational because it was following the, 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 the words and the, the, the commands of its creator. The one who was to be rational was acting irrational. The one animal in the scene who was to be irrational, because we expect donkeys to act in an irrational way. They're very stubborn. They don't do what you ask. They're temperamental. They'll one day they'll do their job. The next day they just don't choose not to. They just put their feet in and say, I'm not moving. Well, this irrational animal speaks sense to the supposed rational human being. Do you see the irony in the illustration? It's a beautiful illustration. And for me, it actually really kind of packs a pretty heavy-duty punch. Because remember Balaam's final end? What happened to Balaam? Numbers 31, verse 8. 
Here's what it says. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Now, why, was, why did the Israelites kill Balaam? Because if you go back to the story of Balaam, what Balaam really did, he never cursed Israel, but he made boku bucks from Balak, the king of Moab. He got paid because he did all that the king asked, even though he didn't do what the king wanted him to say about Israel. But then the following chapter... After chapter 24 ends, chapter 25, verses 1, 2, and 3 and following, talk about how the children of Israel started to worship the god of sex named Baal in that area. What was connected with Balaam, who was supposedly a prophet of God? He was a false prophet who led Israel into idolatry. Balaam was not a good guy. Balaam was a con artist. And I do not believe we will see Balaam in heaven. Balaam did no favors to the children of Israel. In fact, there had to be a a radical uh, event take place where Phineas, one of the priests, Aaron's sons, in blatantly, in broad daylight, this guy brought this Moabite woman into his tent and was cohabitating with her. And Phineas saw it, passed in front of the men as they were at the tent of meeting in the presence of God, communing with God, and Phineas grabs a spear, runs into the tent, and runs both of them through. And the curse that was on Israel because of that idolatry was instantly stopped. This illustration is meant to really jog and shock the people reading it because they knew the story of Balaam. And Peter likens false prophets to what Balaam did. And everybody knew what Balaam ended with. Now, if that's not enough, it's followed then by the influential conduct of false prophets. False prophets have an effect on people when they say things, when they do things, when they promise things. Verses 17 to 19, he calls them waterless springs. Now, don't forget, we're in a desert context in Israel. So springs are few and far between, and when they are found, they promise the satiating of your thirst. Oh, water. I'm dying of thirst. I got to go get a drink. So they go to this spring, and what do they do? They look, and there's no water. What a disappointment. You see, they promise, and they don't deliver. That's what false prophets do. They're waterless springs. They're also known as mists driven by the storm. 
So there's clouds, and you think that the storm with the winds would bring in clouds, which would then dump rain, which would feed the soil and fill the cisterns and have all these springs full of water, and they don't deliver. What a disappointment. People that are dying of thirst can't get any relief. They promise refreshment, but disappointment incurs because of their own greed and their sensual appeal. Those who are weak, easily persuaded, follow these false teachers, but never receive the promised reward of their loyalty. False prophets are expert con artists. They operate a spiritual Ponzi scheme. Boy, that looks really good. You mean if I do this, I'll get rich? Yeah. Liar. Con artist. You know what happens to the Ponzi scheme, guys? They get thrown in jail. Notice, it also says, for them, the gloom of their utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. You ever notice that people are, that are fools like to talk really loud? I think they think that if they say it louder, it's more convincing. I don't know, but I think, kind of think that's how it works. So if I say it louder and say it often, then it must be true. I read it on the internet. It must be true. Loud boasts of folly. False prophets love to boast loudly with no intention on delivering on their promises. Notice, he says they promise freedom when he says themselves they are slaves of their own passions. They are overcome. They're slaves to their passions. Notice the problem that is raised in the churches of Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. I know where you dwell, said uh, John, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, Oh, him again. You see, Balaam gets brought up more than once in the New Testament as an example not to follow. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Notice, Balaam here, through divine inspiration, we're told what really happened. Balak, I mean, Balaam, the prophet, caused Balak, the, the, the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, which was this whole issue of idolatry and worshiping Baal or Baal, the god of sex, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then he mentions the church in Thyatira, in Revelation 2, 19 to 23. 
I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate. Notice, they tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. Notice that Balaam and Jezebel, both of them, led the children of Israel into the worship of Baal, or Baal, who was the predominant god of Palestine, or of ancient Israel, and he was notorious for being the one who led people into sexual immorality. Notice how this is a problem in the first seven churches that are addressed in the New Testament. Now, each one of those churches, just so you know, no longer exists. That's sad. But they didn't deal with the sin that was in their midst. That's why God said, okay, lamp gone, you're done. I will put my lamp somewhere else, like in Muncie, Indiana. And this is going to be the local expression of the body of Christ here in this section. Don't be so sure that because you've been faithful to the gospel, faithful to the truth, that you will always be here. That is my warning to you this morning. Just because you're being godly today doesn't mean that five years from now it will continue. That's why you and I must be vigilant, on the alert, always listening always making sure the truth is being proclaimed. So what is the devastating conclusion of false prophets? That's from verses 20 to 22. Notice that the conditional statement is used in verse 20. He says in verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. This verse has led to some confusion in people's minds. And the confusion is, well, does this mean that people can lose their salvation? Because it says, if they heard it, then their latter conduct and end, it would have been better if they'd never heard the truth at all. That's what verse 22 says, or the latter part of verse 21. Peter's use of this statement, really, is to show that these false prophets had been taught the truth, but they never really embraced it. Because the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. The gospel, when it really does its work in the heart of sinful man, will transform him from a, 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 a someone who is in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. 
He will be transferred from darkness to light. There will be a change. That is evidence of them having believed the truth. But there are some who hear the truth and they use it to twist because they have not been transformed by the truth. They think, oh, I can act like a Christian. I can talk like a Christian. I can pretend just long enough till I win their confidence and then I can do my dirty deeds behind the scene. Stab leadership in the back with my words. Falsely accuse people that are upright and trying to live righteously and gain prominence, gain influence, gain earthly goods like money and power and have people follow me and gut a good Bible-believing church by acting and pretending like I am a teacher of the truth. That's why Peter states, it would have been better if they had not known the way of righteousness, if they were going to turn away from it. He said that is a dangerous position. They not only are bold and brash and willful, and they say things they have no idea what they're talking about in regards to heavenly beings, glorious ones, but they also pretend to believe and follow the truth, and then they turn from it because of their influence, because of the people that have been following them. Guess what happens? Those people fall away as well. Dangerous position to be in. So therefore, he uses the Old Testament proverb to summarize his thoughts on the matter. The first part of this proverb is taken from Proverbs 26.11. The second part of, the pro of what he quotes here is most likely a common saying in Peter's day that his readers would have readily understood and been familiar with. So here's what he says. The dog returns to its own vomit. That's from Proverbs 26.11. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These two things are parallels. It's Hebrew poetry. They may be different subjects, but the same thing happens. Here's what we need to remember from this. That some people pretend to be what they're not for nefarious purposes. They pretend to know the truth. They pretend to accept the truth. They pretend to embrace the truth, but they truly have not embraced it. And you may say, well, is there any biblical examples? Well, I have three of them. It's called the, the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We are not going to look at them this morning, but sometime down the road we might do that. But all three of those parables, it's the same parable, just quoted three times over, but they use three different words. And it says that the, 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 the seed fell on good soil. In Matthew, he uses the word, and they understand, which is a word to refer to putting all the pieces together, which means you could take various truths and you go, oh, that's how that fits together in God's economy. 
and thinking. In Mark, same parable, he uses the word to embrace. It's a completely different word from the word understand. But it's in the same context, you know, of the soil fell on good or the, the seed fell on good soil and it produced twenty, sixty, hundredfold. But the word there is embrace, which actually means to make it your own, to appropriate it to yourself. That's different than understanding. Then in Luke chapter 13, he then talks about that these people where the seed has fallen on a good soil, they hold fast to the truth. They hold fast to the seed, which is the gospel. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, where he says, hold fast to that which I have given to you. The idea of holding fast is not only to have embraced it, but to hang on to it for dear life because it is the only way of salvation. So, these false prophets apparently did not put the pieces together, attribute it to themselves, or hold on to it as being truth because they altered it, twisted it, and produced some other kind of gospel which influenced people to fall away from the truth and not follow the truth. That's what Peter is warning his readers about. Be careful. Watch out. Stay on the alert. So, what is the application for us as believers? How should we handle false prophets when they show up in our church? And they will. They may even be here now. I don't know that for a fact. I have no proof. But here's what you can do. Number one, school yourself well in 2 Peter chapter 2. Okay? But the first thing you need to do is know the truth. Be a student of the word. Know the gospel well. I worked in a bank for several years, and I talked to a teller, and I, I asked him, so how do, you, how, how do you detect a counterfeit? Well, he says, uh, when we're in training, we never touch a counterfeit. We never see a counterfeit. We never smell a counterfeit. We have no idea what a counterfeit looks like. All we handle is real money all the time for all of our training. We get to feel it, smell it. It, it has a smell, and it has a feel, and it, it, we get so familiar with that that when we get slipped in our training at the end, a counterfeit bill, you know it immediately. Now they have machines, and counterfeiters have become really slick artists. Con artists always are figuring out a way to get around all the safety measures. Now they have machines that you slip a dollar bill or whatever, and you can tell whether it's a real or fake because they're supposed to have a certain reflection or glow or whatever. But know the gospel well. So when someone comes in and begins to talk a certain way, you should have your antenna go up and go, whoop, dangers, red flag. I got to think about this. I'm going to have to talk to some other people. 
Be cautious in your evaluation. Don't jump to conclusions. I had a seminary professor that told me, he says, you need to cultivate the art of suspended judgment. I had no idea what that meant when he told me that. What it means is, don't fall for every con artist that comes in. Be like a Long Islander. My wife is well-steeped in this art. She trusts absolutely no one. I'm amazed she trusts me. But we had a conversation about that. We've lived together for 46 years, and she kind of she can actually predict what I'm going to say and do sometimes, which is kind of scary. But it keeps you on your toes. But be careful. Be cautious with the way you evaluate people. Be gracious when you do confront them about the error that they are speaking or you presume that they might be speaking. Be bold, though, in resisting error. Speak the truth in love. That's my exhortation to you as believers of Trinity Baptist Church. But I also am not foolish enough to believe that everyone here is a believer. So I have some things to say to unbelievers today. How should believers respond to unbelievers when they attend our services? How should you respond to a person? Well, listen carefully when speaking about the gospel with them. Make sure that they understand. Make sure that you are always clarifying the gospel. I've been thankful to those who have schooled me in helping me to better understand. I'll just give you one little brief illustration. I grew up not hearing this phrase. It's when I went to college and then seminary that I heard this phrase over and over and over. I would go to camps, and I would go to youth events, and I'm like, just ask Jesus into your heart. That always sounded a little off to me. And the reason why is because I never read that in the New Testament. So that's what made me, first of all, eh, what does that mean? I soon discovered, as I was a better student of the Word, that I read through the New Testament and looked for all indications that would give me an idea that oh, this is a biblical concept of receiving and you know, accepting Jesus into your heart. And guess what? I did not find any. Therefore, my conclusion was, that's not biblical. That ain't right. Now, there are terms like accept the truth, receive, believe, Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Now, those are biblical terms. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be. How it's supposed to be received by us, by those that believe it. Be careful of the words you use with people. Answer gently and honestly about the claims of the gospel. Some people have this idea that the gospel is all about do's and don'ts. It's not. It's about a lifestyle. Following Jesus, obeying Christ, forsaking sin, repenting. Clarify the gospel with them, always. And last but not least, graciously invite them to consider the gospel's claim on their life and their conduct. That's what our job is. May I encourage you and exhort you to do that? Watch out for those that 
bring in wild and crazy things. And there's a lot of stuff going on out there. And you do have visitors from time to time. Listen carefully. Respond graciously. And lovingly invite them to trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word this morning. I know it's been a little extra long this morning. And I thank you for uh, each and every one who has sat patiently and not gotten up and walked out on me. I ask, Lord, that you would guide and direct us as we seek to deal with these, these issues of reality in our life and in the day we live. Things are not different from first century. Very similar. But Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be true, loving, and kind, and gracious to those that may disagree with us and may want to uh, accuse us of various things. But I ask, Lord, that we would be vigilant. Help us to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves as we deal with those who try to speak untruth. We ask, God, that you guide us and direct us, and we pray these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.